Hello and welcome to the Adult Children's Voices Across America Speakers Meeting. If you would like to attend this meeting live, go to adultchildren.org and click on Online Meetings, and then scroll down to find Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time. I'm happy to introduce our speaker, Liz from Guilford, Connecticut. All right. Thank you, Adam, for the introduction. Thanks, Gretchen, for the invitation, and thanks uh, to all the people who make this, um, this meeting and the podcast available to everybody so we can use it in our recovery. So uh, I'll start at the beginning. Um, I am the youngest of five children of two alcoholic parents. Um, in my home, the uh, dysfunction was, um, was rampant by the time I was born. So I was born into a fully dysfunctional family already. Um, I was witness to physical violence and alcohol and drug abuse. Um, and the violence uh, that was used was the only uh, means to resolve conflict. Um, so that's an easy target to understand why I don't like conflict and would do almost anything to avoid it. Um, in, in the home, um, my father was an alcoholic, rageaholic. Um, uh, physically abused my mother and my siblings because I was the smallest and the youngest. I, I escaped that. Um, but what I got in its place was, was neglect. Um, so the root of the, the, some of the traits come from this very early example of, um, of really terrifying, angry people. The only emotions that were allowed to be shown at home uh, were happy or angry. Those were the only ones, but mostly they were exaggerated by drugs and alcohol. Um, my parents, uh, I, now that I've looked at their circumstances when they grew up, um, my my parents were older when they started having children and um, they were born in the 20s and 30s. So they grew up through the depression and through World War II and were affected greatly by that. Um, my mother's father died when she was only eight. So I believe that her emotional um, development stopped right about that same time. She was then shuffled along to other relatives because her mother could no longer take care of her. Um, and my father's mother was a um, extremely devout and rigid Catholic. And that um, I think that she wanted to be a nun and it's possible that she should have gone in that direction. She was not very loving to her four sons. So my parents didn't have a lot of tools to deal with the five children that they had. Um, so one of the things that they lacked in was talking about emotions. Um, the, 
um, we would get in trouble as kids for, for laughing. Um, my father would have this ridiculous saying that he, he, if we were laughing, five children carrying on, he would say, stop your goddamn teeing, as if laughing or teeing was a bad thing to do. Um, if we laughed at the dinner table, then we were sent away. We were not allowed to laugh at the dinner table. Um, if I tried to speak to my mother about emotions, which I did a few times, but not very many, um, if it was a negative emotion that I wanted to talk about, she would tell me to get off the pity pot. And if I, um, if I wanted to bring something up with her and process something that happened in a, during one of the drunken nighttime brawls, she would complain that I only wanted to talk about the bad things and that I should move on and just focus on the good things, which there were. We had, we had plenty of good times. We, um, I grew up near a beach and we did a lot of boating. My father caught lobsters and went fishing um, and all of this was good. We had fun, we swam together, boated together and that was good. Um, but we weren't allowed to just have downtime, especially in the summer. We were not allowed to sit inside, even to read a book in the summer, because that, that was not productive. We needed to be productive and busy. Um, so along with the, the violence, uh, my father was, uh, was a bigot. Um, and the any kind of conversation that the family had was based in humor or sarcasm, like cutting sarcasm, cutting each other down. And still when my siblings and I get together, we just do this banter back and forth where we are extremely funny, but not terribly kind and not a lot of compassion. Um, one of the examples of, um, of unacceptable behavior that was accepted in my family growing up was my two of my three brothers both owned the same telephone pole. One knocked it down one year and another year another one knocked it down and they didn't get disciplined because there was no boundaries but my father would complain that the it was the telephone company's fault because they kept putting it closer to the road but it was never brought up that maybe they should not drink and drive because that was just an acceptable thing in this family. Um, so these kinds of stories were told over and over again in a, in a humorous way. And looking back at it, as an adult, it's, it's, it's just not funny. These things are not funny. These things are tragic um, that these five children that were not disciplined or brought up in any way so there was a total lack of boundaries in the house. Um, we grew up in, in a pretty calm place. There was, we didn't have locks on our doors. And, um, and as a kid, that's a great place to grow up. But as a three-year-old, I would wander away from the house um, and neighbors would bring me home saying, oh, does this little, little person belong here? And I would, they would catch me on the way down to um, a large body of water where there was no supervision. 
Um, and so as the youngest of, of the five kids, I took on the role of the invisible child. I focused on being small and quiet. I wanted to get in under the radar. Any attention that was given to the children was generally negative attention. Um, boys definitely got more attention than girls. Um, my father once said about my own daughter that, well, if she has to be a girl, at least she's pretty. Like this was the, the kind of bigoted talk that he liked to say. Um, by the time I was eight or 10, my parents got divorced and my older siblings had moved out of the house, which was really hard because my sister was my rock. Um, she protected me and she kept me safe. Um, we shared a, a, a room that was very small um, and she was always there taking me everywhere she went, showing me off as uh, the cute little sister. So um, I'll come back to my sister in a little while. Um, so they were pretty highly functioning alcoholics. I don't know how they managed to, but um, they were convinced that it wasn't a problem if they could get up and go to work the next day and they almost always did unless um, unless there was an arrest in which case um, by the time I was um, in my early teens I, I had started taking on the role of being the overly responsible one the older kids had moved out it was just me and mom and my uh, next oldest brother who um, had a, a lucrative drug business from the house. Um, uh, so my responsibility at that age was I, I learned to drive when I was 12. I did grocery shopping at the age of 16 and I became a little mini adult. Um, um, so that set me up on a road of codependence and living a life with the 14 laundry list traits. And um, I'm gonna read a little bit of the big red book um, on page 99 for anybody who wants to follow along. And it says uh, about the second to last paragraph, um, Without recovery, we as adult children intuitively find dysfunctional people and attempt to heal them or cure them based on our upbringing. We confuse love with pity and get unhealthy dependence. ACA experience shows that such behavior dooms relationships. We cannot change anyone. The only person we can change is ourselves and the adult child rarely changes unless she becomes willing to learn a new way to live. The good news is there is another way to live. Um, and then a little layer, lower down, it says, um, others hit bottom in codependent relationships that can be just as addictive as drugs. For instance, some adult children become so obsessed and develop a compulsion for other persons that is similar to an addict's addict obsession and compulsion for drugs. And um, a little farther down, the fear of abandonment can be so powerful that it makes breathing and concentration difficult. 
The fear of going insane is not uncommon. And again, lower codependent pain of this magnitude is actually our child terror of abandonment inserting itself in, the, in a breakup. The intense fear of losing a partner is really our inner children reliving the fear of being unloved and unwanted by our families. So um, I'm gonna jump ahead to the bottom that brought me into ACA. Um, uh, at my bottom, I was in a house uh, by myself that I couldn't afford. Um, my two children who were um, 12 and 14 at the time, um, neither of them were talking to me. And uh, an eight year, extremely codependent relationship had ended in violence. Um, and one of the reasons that my son wasn't talking to me was because um, the violence, he was the target of the violence. And still, even with this violence, I didn't break that relationship off. Um, and finally, that relationship ended and I, I just felt like I couldn't breathe, just like it says in the big red book. Like I felt like a part of me had been removed and the pain was immense. Um, and it was that very day that I happened to see a flyer for an ACA meeting that was in New Haven. And this has been my home group um, ever since that day. That's the Friday night New Haven, Connecticut's um, women's meeting. Um, so I started um, in that group. It was a small group and there were a few people in the group with one or two years but most everybody was a newcomer and there wasn't uh, any sponsors available um, like many people. But the thing that kept me going back was the literature. And um, I was really intrigued also by the openness of the women who shared in that group. And I, it was really remarkable that people could could speak so much from the heart and not be completely terrified. So when I got there, I, I didn't have a voice. I was not somebody who would talk in front of other people. If I tried to speak at the meeting, my face would turn red and I would shake and I would be unable to talk. Um, I also had uh, no language for emotions. So one of the first books that I got, which was something that my therapist recommended, was a book called um, The Language of Emotions, What Our Feelings Are Trying to Tell Us. So I used that book like a reference book and going back and forth between reading the big red book and this book about emotions. And every time an emotion was um, spoken of in the big red book, I'd have to, you know, go to my go to my reference book and try to figure out what in the world they were talking about. There's all these emotions that I had no words for, like shame and grief, and um, like I knew sadness, but sadness is so bland. There's so many different layers to those kinds of feelings um, and compassion. Um, and another uh, point 
Another thing that I didn't know about was the whole concept of safety. People were talking about safety in the meeting, and this was something that blew me away in the beginning. I was so irritated every time we would read these things over and over again, this solution, these steps, this problem, why do we have to read these every time? Just felt like it took so long. And um, about three months in, I realized what the first line of the solution was. I had read it at home and I had heard it at the meetings when I went, but the first line of the solution is we will become our own loving parent. And at first I thought it was just, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm complaining that we're reading all these things, but yet it took me three months to hear just the first line. Um, so I didn't jump right into reparenting myself, but it gave me a little jolt that maybe somebody else knows something that I don't know. And maybe it's a good idea to reread these things every time because there's so much in every paragraph of AC8 literature. Um, so as I dove into reading the Big Red Book and my book about emotions, I started to um, understand why my throat hurt when I tried to speak of my truth in a meeting. And, and I think that it was that my heart and my head were so disconnected that my words were literally getting stuck in my throat and they couldn't come out. Um, and I would read um, the Big Red Book. Somebody in my first meeting, um, who was a dear friend still, suggested that I read chapter eight first. So that's what I did. And I learned about um, self-love. And I, I, I read the phrase that I am worthy of, of love and acceptance. And another friend of mine wrote this on my bathroom mirror with a giant Sharpie, I am worthy of love and respect. And I couldn't say the words in the beginning. They felt, they felt dirty in my mouth. They felt like they didn't belong there. And eventually I was able to look at the mirror um, and say the words, I am worthy of love and respect. And eventually after saying them for a few months, it started to penetrate a little bit and I started to believe it. And as I started to believe it, these miracles were happening around me in my children started to treat me with respect. And, and that was like one of the first huge aha moments of, of my um, ACA journey. Like I'm going to change this about myself and it's going to make other people treat me differently too. And I thought that was kind of a miracle. So as I worked through um, accepting myself, um, learning that the critical voice in my head was this judgmental voice of the household that I grew up in. And um, before ACA, I had this um, 
New Year's resolution for maybe five years in a row of, I want to be less judgmental, but I just didn't know how to do it. Every year I would make the same resolution. I want to be less judgmental. And the, the thing that really got it for me was when I stopped judging myself constantly and harshly without, um, without letting up at all. When I was able to quiet that voice inside my head and be kind and compassionate to myself, the second miracle happened because I, I was no longer judging myself. I didn't have to judge everybody else that was around me. So as I said before, in, the, in my meeting, there weren't um, sponsors around yet. There were a group of four women who were doing the steps together and they had said that once they had finished the steps, they could be a sponsor, but they weren't at that point yet. So instead of waiting, we got uh, the idea to get another group of four women together and we started to do the steps and we, went, we met weekly. We did not use a timer. We did not use a schedule or a syllabus and we went through the red book together. And uh, we met for, we started about an, at an hour and then by the end we were at about two hours. And it took us a, a good part of two years to get through the 12 steps together. But that was a pretty amazing uh, journey. It was the first time that I really was able to open up my heart to other people and really become um, intimately involved with them. The thing that I thought was intimacy um, in the past was not intimacy, it was intensity. Um, but learning how to open up and be there and listen to other people and be open to um, their shares and their troubles and, and their struggles and to be honest with them about my own was really the beginning of um, intimate relationships that I hadn't had anything like that before in my life. And so um, that was a pretty remarkable experience. And by the time those two years were up um, and I took a break, I kind of felt like my program was stagnating. I was going to two meetings a week um, and uh, doing the step work. But once the step work was over, I, I, I didn't know what to do next. I kind of felt like I was at a loss. So I started another group and we did the steps again. It took, um, about 18 months this time. And the second time is much easier than the first. Um, and I really focused the second time through on um, really trying to figure out what was my block in an intimate relationship. And, um, and I'm still working on that because of course, uh, it's not one thing, it's a whole pile of things. Um, and when that group stopped doing, when we got through the 12 steps in the yellow workbook, that same group started doing the laundry list workbook. 
and we still work at it every week and we are we are at about step six um, I mean trait six at this point and this is hard work um, the yellow book was hard work but this is this is the traits are so invasive and they're so sneaky um, and they they send tendrils through all aspects of uh, of my being, it's hard to recognize them and find them. But once they are recognized and found, then I can start making the changes in myself. Um, I'll go back to the, um, I skipped a part of my first step experience. Um, actually, I skipped a lot of it. Um, during the first step experience, I had to struggle with my understanding of a higher power. My religious upbringing was not very consistent in that. Saying that it wasn't very consistent is one of those euphemisms of the adult child. It was a shit show, actually. Um, uh, my mother, who was brought up Protestant, brought the children to Catholic church because my father was Catholic. And while she brought us, she would complain about the, all of, of the dogma and even down to the decorations. And she would um, uh, belittle all of the kneeling and the sitting and the, and, and, um, the crucifix and um, all of the things that they do at a Catholic um, Service. Um, so uh, by the time the divorce happened and things were really bad at home, we just didn't go to church anymore. So uh, even that sketchy religious upbringing had just completely stopped. And then during college, I had a short run in with a born again Christian group. Uh, really looking for a home, looking for a place where I belonged, looking for that unconditional love that I wasn't getting um, from myself or from the family. Um, and then um, I was in that group until I was kicked out for being a lesbian. Um, they, they, as you can imagine, the um, literal biblical born again Christians aren't very fond of um, homosexuality. Um, so by the time I got to ACA and I heard the, the word God over and over and over again, it really made me cringe in the beginning and I just had to really get over that. So in the beginning, my higher power was, um, was nature and it was my pond. So the pond that I built in my backyard was a little bit of an oasis. Waterfall and frogs and koi fish and lots of flowers. And it was very beautiful. And I called uh, my higher power pond, which is an acronym standing for the power of nature and diversity. Um, so that was what I could look up to. That was the thing that was more powerful than me. And as I went through the steps, um, I became more comfortable with a higher power. Um, but when I got through step five, 
this unexpected uh, dark night of the soul experience happened where I just felt like I was floating in ether, completely unsupported. And um, I remember the day that I just, I formed the question in my head, didn't really say it out loud, but just thought the words, can I get some help here? Over. I need, I need help. And before I could even completely form the question of what can I do, I need help here. I heard an answer and that answer was, I'm here. Oh, I'm, I'm already here, open your heart. Um, and I, I was really taken aback by the simplicity of all you have, all I had to do at that moment was ask for the help and it was there. So that, um, from that day on, um, I still love and respect my natural surroundings, but my higher power is, is a divine um, higher power. And I can now um, open my heart to that. And, um, and my daily meditation is opening my heart to the, to the light and the love of the universe and getting my energy from that life giving source. And uh, it's, it's been quite a miracle journey. Um, uh, there must be more in this paper. Um, so, uh, this 30-minute update as you requested. Thank you. Um, so in addition to going to meetings, reading the literature, doing the step work and the laundry list workbook, um, reaching out to fellow travelers and journaling and having a relationship with a higher power, one of the other things that I was told would help me is doing service. I was told in the beginning that doing service above the group level would uh, strengthen my recovery. And I liked this stuff. I was impatient and I wanted it. I wanted the recovery, not just the relief, and I wanted it now. Uh, so my first, um, besides just fitting, taking my spot in the chair at a meeting, which is the service I could do at the very beginning, uh, being able to read things out loud in front of people and then chairing the meeting, I became uh, the intergroup rep, um, which, I, which was kind of another miracle because I, I just thought the whole process was just frankly quite irritating. <laughs> um, but I really began to look forward to my intergroup meetings because I was meeting people who had all this recovery and um, they were really great examples in the community. And eventually I became um, the intergroup chair. 
uh, and I was intergroup chair of Connecticut when COVID hit and uh, we started doing these online workshops. Um, we did the first online workshops co-sponsored by WSO and that was, that was pretty eye-opening. So we discovered that we had access to the whole world and that was a really amazing journey. Um, one of the other things I wanted to say about my early recovery is that I had willingness. Um, thank God I had willingness because I had resistance that was huge. Briefly, my willingness was always just a little bit stronger than my resistance and I was able to move forward. Um, so I said I was going to come back to um, my sister um, and I'm going to just read this one other part, which is on page. Eighty-three, um, page 83 in the middle. The need to reparent ourselves comes from our effort to feel safe as children. So I didn't even have a concept of what safety was. I was asking my inner child one day, what was it that made me feel safe? And for a long time, it was my sister, but my sister's nine years older than me and she had to go off and and do her own life. And there just wasn't a feeling of safety anywhere in the home anymore. And I just, I didn't know what that felt like. So I needed to reparent myself in a way. Um, and one of the ways I do that is by reframing the, the past. Um, I'll take an incident that has happened in when I was a child and instead of having the parts played by my parents, I give them new scripts and, and, I, and I have them validate the feeling of the, of the little girl who's afraid. And it's okay if you cry. We all cry sometimes and it's okay to be afraid, but I'm here to protect you and I'm not gonna let anything happen to you. So learning how to make myself feel safe was a really important thing. Um, moving on a little bit in the reading, the violent nature of alcoholism darkened our emotional world and less, left us wounded, hurt, and unable to feel. Uh, this extreme alienation from our own internal direction kept us helpless and dependent on those we mistrusted and feared. So this, um, I always feel like there's two parts of me that are, are pulling against each other. The people that, that, the part of me that wants to cling to what is known and the part of me that wants to feel safe. So I think that's where my resistance came from. This, this, this is what I know and this is, this, is, this is what my frame of reference is and, and I can't abandon that. Um, and then lower down on the page, the freedom begins with being open to love. The dilemma of the abandonment is a choice between painful intimacy 
and hopeless isolation. And that hopeless isolation is, is where I lived when, um, before I reached my bottom, when I would be in my house with my partner and our blended family and the chaos of the five kids that we had together. And still I felt lonely because I was not living in intimacy. I was living in isolation. I was just surrounded by people that I didn't know how to be intimate with. Um, so I heard um, at the beginning of this meeting, somebody was calling for uh, service positions. So if there's um, anybody who wants to build up your recovery, service is a great way to do that. Um, there was something else I wanted to say in my disheveled notes. Um, Oh, the last thing is about fear. The fear is the first of the emotions that I really truly understood for the first time. And uh, when I read the laundry list for the first time, it said that we feared people. And, and I, was, I was appalled by this notion. I really believed that I feared nothing. I really believed that there was nothing on the whole world that could, that could frighten me. I could handle anything. Um, and then I was reading in the Big Red Book and looking up in my book of emotions that that shaky feeling that I had constantly, not just as a child, but even into my adult years, that shaking and tremoring inside my gut, that is fear. And I was terrified all the time of everything. The reason I thought I feared nothing is because the fear never went away. It was with me all the time. And now I know how to recognize feelings in my body. And it took me over and over and over again to realize that the reason they call emotions feelings is because you can actually feel them. I feel them in my body. This was something I had to learn. I didn't know that. And once I learned that I had been afraid look, and hypervigilantly looking around for all sorts of things that were not safe, once I realized that that was fear, my whole being calmed down. I think I got an inch taller. I just, um, it was really an amazing experience. Um, And I think that's all I've got to say. So thank you very much for listening to my story. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Liz. Thank you, Liz. Thanks, 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 Liz. Liz. Thank you, Liz. Thanks, Liz. Thank you, Liz. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, 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 Liz. Thanks, thank you, Liz. Thanks, thank you, Liz. Liz. That was wonderful. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Liz.
Thank you, Liz. Wonderfully inspiring. Thank you so, so much. Incredible, Liz. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Liz. That was great. Jane from Colorado. I'm glad to be part of your family. <laughs>